Well, when we left the story of Esther, the decree to annihilate the Jews with this agonizing 11-month delay, 11-month waiting period, the decree had just been issued. And the capital of Susa, where our protagonists, Esther and Mordecai, are living, the capital city's bewildered and in an uproar. And so today, in chapter 4, we'll make three points. They are on the back inside page of your bulletin. The cries, the charge, and the courage. Esther chapter 4 is the text. So first, the the cries. Chapter 4, verse 1 opens, says, When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, We'll see that Mordecai knows more than just about the issuing of the text of the decree. He knows the backstory. He's well connected, Mordecai. But he's a political actor. He has his ear to the ground. That's why he was able to foil an assassination plot. When he heard all that had been done... He tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes, goes out into the city in public and weeps loudly, bitterly. I mean, who knows what he thought? Was it his own own pig-headed pride in not bowing to Haman which provoked this? It could have been. Was it his loyalty to some anti-Amalekite principle? The story leaves the question open. But in any event, whether it was Mordecai's misjudgment or Mordecai's virtue, this is a traditional Jewish liturgy for expressing grief. Tearing the clothes, sackcloth and ashes, wailing. It's a form of dramatic identification with death itself. You smear the dust of death all over yourself. You lay down in it. Jews do not grieve in their hearts. There's a public liturgy involved here. Usually it's done, notice this, usually it's done after a disaster. Here it happens before a decreed disaster. And the hope here is that perhaps, perhaps, it'll be effective at turning away the coming woe. And the text tells us that the Jews in every province throughout the whole empire, upon receiving the edict, follow Mordecai. So you get this one communal, international act of mourning. Many, we're told, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. It's a very stark contrast to the cosmetics and the pampering and the food that Esther is getting in the palace, in her harem. And normally, this type of grief, this Jewish liturgy, especially the fasting part of it, normally it would provoke prayer and repentance right, and self-examination. You can find something just like that at Nineveh in the book of Jonah. Now, it may have done that here. 
But our narrator mysteriously insists on not referencing God or any address to or from God. He has this whole Jewish ritual of mourning and no reference to prayer. He tells the story, as I said, like a detached observer. He speaks of Mordecai the Jew and Esther's people. But I think it's important to reflect a little bit on this. We've mentioned it a few times to this point. But the fact that Esther is like this is a corrective, I think, a helpful um, correcting sort of word to a kind of piety that thinks God is absent. Maybe he's absent from someone's thoughts or from someone's words. Maybe he's absent from a story or a novel or a movie or a song. Right? There, are, there are people who think that God is absent because he's unmentioned. There is a kind of piety like that. Of course, it's very good to call upon the name of God and to invoke him. But there is, there is, on the other side of this, a real danger of the trivializing of holy things by their overuse, right? By their shallow, artificial, consistent sort of use. The Orthodox Jewish community gets the instinct here where they refute the name of God is so ineffable, so holy, so transcendent, so other, that they refuse to pronounce it. Now, that's an overreaction, but it's something evangelical Christendom could learn from with all of our chattiness about God. Right? They don't think we need a reflex to insert something Christian every so often just in case we forgot. Right? Jesus warns about this too. He says, don't take the pearls and throw them before swine. Don't take the holy things and just give them to the dogs. Be careful with my name. We don't think, you know, this is as if the good things of creation did not already reflect the glory of the God of creation. There's a kind of evangelical, I think, broad-based approach to this, which thinks deep in its heart that God should have painted, praise the Lord, across the sky. That way the sky would be just a little more efficient, the heavens, in telling the glory of God. Don't kid yourself. If we did it our way, that's what would happen. There'd be Bible verses plastered in the clouds and on the trees and on the rocks. Now think of this, though. Think of what this entails. It entails a belief that somehow the created order, which reflects the glory of God, is somehow deficient or sub-Christian. Interestingly, right? that ends up being a deep agreement between the actual secularists you're trying to oppose. There's a great mystery here. How can you have 60 and 70 and 80 million evangelicals ferociously opposing secularism and secularism growing mightily? Well, maybe they both agree that huge swaths of life are somehow deficient or defective until we claim them. 
Now, think of the creation itself. It's repetitive. It's liturgical. It's a telling. It's speech. Psalm 19, speaking. It's profuse speech. What does it say? God is divine. It shows his power, his nature, his glory every day, exactly the same way, but it's indirect, right? It's subtle. It's done without any express reference to the creator. So here's the point here about the book of Esther. One can tell perhaps the most gripping story of deliverance after the Exodus in Israel's history. And you can tell it at length. And you can tell it's a great dramatic effect. And you can tell it as the word of God, included in the canon of Holy Scripture without a single reference to God. That's what the narrator does here, and it is not a defect. It's part of the genius of the book of Esther. It complements the other books. Song of Songs does the same thing, by the way. There's no references to God in the Song of Songs. Zero. But do you know what? Up until 1800, this is going to shock you. You're going to think, this is not true. Up until 1800, after the Psalms, no book was preached in the church more than the Song of Songs. And by a large margin. Imagine that. The vast majority of sermons in the Christian church before 1800 were preached from a book with zero references to God. It's as if with Esther and the Song of Songs, God is hallowing certain forms. Esther hallows the narrative form. The song hallows the poetry form. So here's what Esther teaches us. Especially if you're a young person and you want to go into the arts I think you should listen to me now. This is a very simple thing that you'll be taught, right? Show, don't tell. Anybody who teaches a writing class teaches that, right? Show, don't tell. Constant telling ends up being moralizing. Propaganda. right? Filmmakers learn this. Good filmmakers know how to show and not to tell. So if you're handed the book of Esther, you should not think, oh, this is is a secular book. Any more than you should think the sky is secular. Right? Or apples are secular. Or a B minor chord is secular. Or chemistry is secular. Or baseball is secular. Or speaking is secular. Or engineering is secular. Or poetry is secular. Or narratives are secular. Or metal and steel. Or sewage removal. Or painting. We don't concede that these things are all secular and they need our assistance. They reflect the goodness and the glory of God and his common grace and his creational splendor. All lawful activity flows from and reflects the goodness of the Christian God. It is already, in a deep sense, yours. It's already ours. And and by the way, not just because of God as Father, but because the Jesus who you worship is the eternal Son 
and the Logos by whom all things are made and who sustains all things. The imprint of the second person of the Trinity is already on all these things. So we don't have to have a twitch to cover them up. Or another way to put this is, the Christian church has historically understood the whole created order as sacramental. As participating in and pointing to the life of God. Right? This is before we get after it with our stuff. God does not need to be added to his own creational gifts. The earth is the Lord's. The fullness thereof. All of this, I think, can be provoked by just asking yourself, how is it that the most gripping, powerful story of deliverance is told as the word of God without reference to God? So back to the the narrative of the hidden God in Esther. We have great grief, and presumably, I, I mean, I think we can presume that there was prayer, but again, narratively, there's no prayer mentioned. But in the grief, in the grief here, Mordecai is tactical. Verse 2 says, he, he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Right? The king doesn't want to deal with sackcloth and ashes. The palace is sumptuous and clean and elegant. It's a place of feasting. Go mourn elsewhere. Sackcloth and ashes are dirty. And so Mordecai, who worked at the gate, is now in mourning in public at the king's gate. And why is he mourning there? Why is he not in his house mourning? Because he wants to make this a political act, a public act. He's trying to get the queen's attention, Esther's attention, and he succeeds. Esther has these eunuchs in attendance. They tell her about Mordecai. You know, as an aside, it seems impossible that Esther's staff could not figure out that she was Jewish. And it turns out, we'll see even in this chapter, that in fact they do. There's some of them that know her Jewishness. And they're just reliable. I guess they're keeping the secret for her. But Esther's in the palace, and it's important to remember, this is a place of isolation. She doesn't know anything about the decree against the Jews. So the city's in an uproar. Who cares? I'm in the palace. And her response is superficial. She doesn't even ask about the cause of the grief. What does she do when she hears? She treats this like it's a, like a, a style faux pas, a fashion problem. She sends a change of clothes. Now, it's true. Maybe she's just helping Mordecai get into the king's gate, but he goes into the king's gate every day. The guy's got clothes. What are you thinking? Maybe she's just concerned about appearances, something like this. Stop making a scene or my Jewishness will be exposed. But in any event, notice the text tells us she's in distress. But she's not in mourning like Mordecai and all the other Jews. Mordecai is the Jew now. Esther, who remember has two names, is still primarily a Persian. And Mordecai refuses the clothes. Right? And then, belatedly, you know, Esther sends another mediator, this king's eunuch, this guy, Hathak, to find out what's troubling Mordecai and why. That brings me to the charge, the second point. So this Hathak 
guy, the king's eunuch appointed to Esther, he goes to Mordecai. Mordecai tells him the text says, everything that happened to me. He's the representative Jew. And here we can see he knows more than what's contained in the edict. He knows even the amount of blood money that Haman paid. So killing is one thing. Killing is one thing. Killing for profit is even more appalling. And Mordecai knows he's hoping that this blood money will rouse Esther's righteous indignation, which is what he's trying to do. And so there's no, there's no doubt about the information. He gives the eunuch a copy of the decree, the decree of genocide, and he tells him to explain it to Esther. And then he boldly tells him to instruct Esther, to charge her. Now notice he's treating Esther, who is the queen, still as his adopted daughter. And he tells the eunuch, tell Esther, go into the king's presence, beg for mercy, plead with him for your people. Notice that. Now they're her people. Now Mordecai's telling this to the eunuch, so the eunuch now knows, oh, Esther's Jewish. Almost certainly a handful of people already knew, but presumably this eunuch is reliable. So to this point, Mordecai has insisted that she hide her Jewishness. Now the time for that has passed. Will she acknowledge? Will she identify herself with Mordecai and with all these grieving Jews through 127 provinces or not? And Esther's reply, her initial reply here is less than promising. I mean, she doesn't explicitly refuse, but this is basically a refusal. It's done respectfully. Done respectfully, but in our day and age, it could be reduced to something like, are you joking? All the people, she says, of the king's officials and the provinces know that anyone who who approaches the king without being summoned is by law put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter. Everybody knows this, Mordecai. Access is strictly controlled, even for the queen. So Mordecai, she says, think of what you're asking me to do. You're asking me to repeat Vashti's crime of defiance and insubordination. You're asking me to expose my Jewishness, which you've told me to hide, and thus tell the king that I've been deceiving him. You're asking me to break the law and essentially confirm Haman's charge that the Jews are lawbreakers. This is a venture with no reasonable hope of success. You are sentencing me to death, is what she's saying here. Besides Mordecai, the edict cannot be changed, even by the king. So this is the voice of caution, right? There's nothing unreasonable about what she said. This is the voice of prudence and safety. Oh, and notice there's one more little important detail here. She says, 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. And the king is not sleeping alone. So Mordecai, I don't have the kind of relational leverage with the king that you think I have. The guy hasn't even seen me for 30 days. His ardor has cooled. We've been married five years now. 
Esther becomes queen in the seventh year of Xerxes' reign. We are now in the twelfth year of Xerxes' reign. I am not his chief joy anymore. So that's the charge. And it's resisted. The Jews need a mediator. They need a savior. And Esther responds to Mordecai with something like this. Do you grasp the high and the excessive cost of me being the mediator? Which, of course, brings us to the third point, the courage. Mordecai is going to press in very hard here, very desperately, and very eloquently. He gets Esther's first response. He sends back this answer. And this is tough, tough, tough love. And it's a radical change in Mordecai's approach. These are arguably the most important words in the book here. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Do you think that? You talk about going for the jugular. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this decree won't touch you. You'll have the protection of the palace. And virtually nobody knows you're a Jew. You seem to be the safest Jew in the world. Well, let me tell you this. I'm not going to let that happen. This is a thinly veiled threat from Mordecai. I will let everybody know you're a Jew. Do not think you're going to walk away from this unscathed. He doesn't actually have to say it. He just asks this question. Do you think, do you think that you're going to escape? I'll be the one who takes care of that. If you remain silent at this time, right? Providence hems us in with its own timing. There's that wonderful, famous chapter in Ecclesiastes, book three, about there's a time for this and a time for that, a season for this. Those are God's times. We don't order them, they fall out by God's order. History just sometimes forces momentous things on ordinary people. There are critical moments of decision even in your life, in every life. And this is yours, Esther, if you remain silent at this time. You could have been silent yesterday. Maybe the day after tomorrow you can be silent. Last week you could have been silent. Right now you cannot be. If you remain silent, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from some other place. Again, there's no pious jargon here. He could have said, the Lord will deliver us by some other means, which is, of course, fine to say. The Bible says it a lot. But there's a different kind of artistry here, which I think is instructive in an age like ours. So, you know, rather, and you can feel, you can almost feel this, I think, when you read Esther. There's this magnificent presence of God. It's pulsating under the surface everywhere precisely because it isn't visible or present anywhere in the narrative. Not not present anywhere, but pulse. It's it's like I said earlier in this series. It's like looking at a famous painting. Some people don't see the painter because he hasn't painted himself into the scene or he hasn't signed the painting. Other people realize that the painter's presence is everywhere, that the painter's never absent from the painting. And a lot of God's painting and writing in the world is done that way anonymously. Who's writing every narrative of every life, of every nation, of all of history? Who's the author? Yeah, he's not signing all the work, is he, though? Anyway... 
Mordecai says relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. How does Mordecai know this? Again, the narrator doesn't tell us, but I, I think the answer is pretty obvious. He knows the covenant promises about Abraham and his seed. It's not like Mordecai's had a, a vision or a revelation. He knows the promises. He knows that when God told Abraham about his innumerable seed, he was making a promise that the Jews would not be destroyed. And you know what Paul said about that passage? He said, God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So notice this. I want you to see this. What is happening here is that Mordecai is preaching the gospel to Esther. No scripture references, no mention of God. Yet make no mistake about it. He is preaching the gospel to her, the Abrahamic gospel. He's challenging her false sense of security. He's undermining her understandable fears. And he's reminding her indirectly to be sure that the covenant promises of God are unthwartable. And notice what else he's reminding her of. Those covenant promises have a curse attached. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And there is an allusion to that curse here when Mordecai says, if you remain silent, relief and deliverance will arise from some other place, but you and your father's house will perish. That's the curse of the Abrahamic covenant being preached to Esther. This is the covenant, Esther. Choose blessing or choose curse. It's a not-so-veiled threat. God will punish you and your father's house, perhaps even through me disclosing your Jewish identity if you don't respond to this plea. So Mordecai's challenged her very deeply here. Will you walk by sight and be a Persian and let the Jews perish? Or will you walk by faith, identify with your people, knowing that those who curse your people will perish? So now it's clear. This is a call to take up the burden and to pay the price of being a mediator. And Mordecai concludes, who knows? Who knows but that you have come into the kingdom, into your royal position for such a time as this. Again, notice, there's a tempered kind of humility here. There's an acknowledgement that we see through a glass partially and darkly. Mordecai knows the big picture promises of God, but he doesn't know the details of what God's going to do in the short or medium term. He has no idea how things are going to work out in the immediate future. Who knows, he says. Joel says the same thing. Joel says, who knows? If you fast and mourn, maybe God will relent and not bring the disaster. Same thing here for Mordecai. Who knows? It's possible. It's not certain. Of course, you know, the God who appears to be absent is the God who sees and who knows, whose providence rules over kings, and he's ultimately the decisive actor. But all of this is implicit in Mordecai's speech. You can feel the force of these words. They back back Esther into a corner where she has to put her life on the line or defect from the covenant. There's no third option. There's no third, I'd like to be a reasonably good, generally comfortable Christian in between the choice of death or defection. 
Christian discipleship and history will do this to you, beloved. It will press you into that corner where it's death to self, deny yourself, take up your cross or follow Jesus, or defect. That's what the gospel is. This is Esther's hour. This may be her life purpose. Mordecai says you should steal yourself and assume that it is. You're not going to be able to run. You're not going to be able to hide. You're going to have to plunge yourself into the fray. It's a very um, Churchillian moment. It's a Churchill-like appeal. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duties. And so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and in its commonwealth should last for another thousand years, men will say, this was their finest hour. It's that kind of speech to Esther. If the Jewish people should last for thousands of years, men will say, this was our finest hour. And the gospel preached in this manner works. Esther believes the gospel. She believes the gospel. And here the balance of power shifts in the narrative. She no longer takes instruction from Mordecai. She gives it to him. She is no longer his adopted cousin from this point in the narrative on. She is his queen. She is his political authority. She is the moral leader of the Jewish nation. Because it turns out right here, this is the same girl who, who a few hours ago sent Mordecai a pair of clothes in response to his mourning. Now, we knew that she was beautiful, that she had a compliant side. We knew she was shrewd. But we find out here that she has a backbone of steel. And he's going to display from this point on extraordinary political skill, moral and physical courage. She turns to Mordecai and she says, gather the Jews in the city. For this lengthy three-day fast on her behalf. This is a long fast, right? There's one fast day in the Jewish liturgical calendar. It's the Day of Atonement, one day. This is a three-day fast. And she says her and her attendants, they obviously know she's Jewish. Her and her attendants will also fast. And then she commits with these very famous and courageous and moving words. The hinge of the story, I will go to the king even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. This language, notice, is not that perishing is an option. The language communicates the idea that perishing is virtually inevitable. She doesn't think I have a 50-50 chance of perishing. Get your things in order before you do this, Esther. Get your affairs in order. Say adieu to the brethren. It is virtually certain that when you do this, it's the last thing you'll do. Right? This is confessing God before men. This is shouldering the cross, taking up the call to die as mediator of the people. And in this reversal now, Mordecai goes away, carries out her instructions. And so now we're set on the edge of this cliff. In three days... Esther will launch into the darkness. Her fate, the fate of her people, hanging in the balance. I want to make one one point in closing here, and we'll call it mediation. I've already alluded to it. It's a mistake to look at the book of Esther, to look at the story, and apply it directly to ourselves. 
or to something like our need to be decisive or bold or courageous. She points first to Jesus, not to us. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus, not to us directly. So what's going on here is this. Esther undoes the one act of Mordecai. Jesus undoes the one act of Adam. She will save the physical seed of Abraham, and Christ, the physical seed, saved from her courage, will save the spiritual children of Abraham throughout the world. Esther prefigures Jesus, who lived in glorious splendor, who did not need to empty himself to identify himself with us, who would be handed no golden scepter, no reprieve, no stay of execution, either by the Roman or the Jewish authorities or by his heavenly father, the king. With Jesus, it was not, if I perish, I perish, but rather, I have come to perish. I must perish. Perishing is my mission. So her courage and her bravery point to his courage and his bravery in facing the justice of his father, the king, at the hands of the Roman and Jewish authorities. He's the great mediator. And the cost that she pays is a pale reflection of the cost that Jesus pays to redeem us. And that's how you can see Jesus in this book. And it's only in this mediator, who Esther points us to, that we can then, indeed, speak of our need to be bold and decisive and courageous. We should be encouraged then in this. Esther and Mordecai were, shall we say, perhaps a little less than bold and courageous to this point. Maybe we have been too. As I said before, the past doesn't matter. Esther was completely in left field 30 minutes ago. It doesn't matter what you've done wrong in the past. God can and still and desires to use you mightily if you place yourself and your life, and your comfort at his disposal. You're made for, we're cut from the same stuff that Esther's cut from. There's no heroic human cloth that some people get and others don't get. So like Esther, we're called to be willing. Right? We're called to be willing as soldiers of the cross to have our safety disrupted, to take risks, to act, to impact the world. Right? For you to be right where you are this morning here is a long string of providential twists and turns, a long string of mistakes, a long string of noticed and unnoticed coincidences. It's a a bit of a mystery. It's a long and complex bit of storytelling by the seemingly absent storyteller of all the world's stories. Who knows? Maybe you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. So believe the gospel of Jesus, the mediator. Follow him. For like Esther, we're called to lose our lives in order to save them. Amen. Amen.